Well, please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. This is it, folks. Last one, last chapter. We are finishing this great book. And in light of that, I want you to think this morning about that feeling that you get when you finish something really important. That is a feeling that I think everyone finds satisfaction in. <laughs> think, for example, about finishing a big project in your home and it finally being done until you have to start in the next one, right? It's like never ending. Or, or think about finishing a really hard shift at work and you clock out and you get in your car and you go home. Or think about finishing your college degree and you submit that final paper. Or maybe for you, finishing that last sleeve of Oreos. And man, it just feels so... Okay, mate, that's just me. That's just me. But, you know, when you complete a major task and you sit back and you see the fruit of your labor, that is a uniquely satisfying experience. And today, we're going to see that kind of moment in the lives of a people we've been following for the last six months. If you've been here with us at Blue Valley on Sundays, then you know we've been walking through the book of Exodus, which chronicles the early history of a people called the Israelites. The Israelites were descendants of a man named Abraham, who God made a special covenant with in Genesis. God chose him and promised to make his people into a mighty nation and be their God. And he promised to bless them and then through them to bless all the other nations on the earth. But through a series of events, God's people, the Israelites, ended up in centuries of slavery in Egypt. And that's where the book of Exodus opened. It was dark and hopeless. God's people were suffering at the hands of this tyrannical Pharaoh who ordered the murder of every male Israelite baby. But we saw that despite all that, God heard the cries of the people. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, and he raised up a deliverer named Moses. Poor Moses. You remember, he tried as hard as he could to get out of it. I mean, he said, God, just send anybody but me. Eventually, he submitted. He went to Pharaoh, and he demanded the release of God's people. And through a series of supernatural events and plagues brought on Egypt, Pharaoh eventually let the people go. Well, sort of. God had struck down every firstborn in Egypt, but it passed over the Israelites by the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost. And that final act led to God's people walking out of Egypt free. But you'll remember, Pharaoh changed his mind. He readied his chariots, he got his army, and he chased down God's people, setting up what we said was the central salvation moment of the entire Old Testament. It was the parting of the Red Sea. God's people walked through the water on dry land, and then the waters crashed over the armies of Egypt. And Israel came out the other side singing and praising God as their leader for a new nation. Moses then led the people to Mount Sinai, where they met their God. They saw his power and his holiness and his love for them, and, and God made another covenant with them, this time including a set of rules, a set of laws like the Ten Commandments. See, because God wanted his people to know that to that be his people, they had to live a certain way, they needed to know they needed to live like him if they were going to represent him. And so Israel promised to obey. But that didn't last very long, did it? At the same mountain where they heard God's voice and received God's law, they broke it. They worshiped the golden calf and defied, defied the very God who led them out of slavery. But God forgave his people. He renewed the covenant with them. And then God demonstrated his desire to live among his people by giving them instructions on building him a home. 
This home was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was the place where heaven touched earth, where God's glory would be manifest among his people and where the priests would serve God on behalf of the Israelites. Last week, we saw the actual building of the tabernacle, and today we come to the last chapter of this great book. We're going to have our own moment of finishing something we started as we see what happened when the Israelites finished the huge undertaking of building a home for God. So look with me at Exodus chapter 40, and I'm actually going to read this entire chapter all at once. I know it's going to be a lot. It's going to even be a little repetitive, but I think it's, it's really helpful for us to see how this chapter, it's a great summary of all that we've seen. So it's going to give you a sense of this big finish the author wants us to see with this book. So I want you to really try to hang with me, try to, try to pay attention to this. Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar, for instance, before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it in all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen. And screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. And burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Okay, deep breath, everybody. If, if you're still with me after all that, say, I am. I am. Okay, we can keep going. I was a little nervous. This is a great summary. Of all that we've seen with the tabernacle and all the parts and pieces, the people make everything exactly as they were told. And now Moses gets to assemble and place everything exactly as he was told. And let's remember the significance in following the exact instructions. God was very particular on the kind of materials used and the length and the width and the height and the order. That's because God is a God of order. We see that in Genesis 1 with the way God designed and created the world. And the tabernacle is meant to be a sort of new creation. Uh, reordering his creation in the midst of a fallen world back to its original purpose. And what was creation's original purpose? Well, it was for God to dwell with his people. That was the entire goal of creation, and so that was the entire goal of the tabernacle. God wants to live and be with his people. So the tabernacle functioned as an earthly copy of God's heavenly throne room. Now, that's the other reason it had such specific instructions. It was meant to represent heaven. It was the place where heaven touched earth. It was a palace for the God of heaven. So, so this was no ordinary tent, but it was the single most important structure on the face of the earth. We've got to remember that when we read through these chapters. What feels so detailed and overdone to us was the lifeblood of these people's relationship with God. The next significant thing to notice is the timing of the tabernacle being completed and set up. The Israelites would have found a lot of importance in this. We see that the tabernacle was set on the first day of the first month of the second year, essentially what we would call New Year's Day. But the Israelites had a different calendar than we do. Do you remember what event organized their calendar? It was the exodus, the moment they left Egypt, that event was what defined them as a people and a nation. And that event became the start of their year. So the first day of the first month of the first year, the people were redeemed by God. And the first day of the first month of the second year, one year later, the tabernacle was raised. And all of this was connected for the people that they would have saw that this was God's plan to bring his people out of slavery, redeem them for himself so that they could dwell with him and be their God and so that he, they could enjoy his presence forever. And that's the last thing we can't miss from this last chapter. It's the big finish when God himself fills the tabernacle with his glory. Notice the emphasis, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Twice we read that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the people know this takes place because God makes it visible to them with a cloud covering. 
Can you just imagine this scene? The same cloud that covered Mount Sinai and all its horror and splendor now comes to rest on this tent that you just made with your own hands. There, there would have been no doubt in their minds what this meant. The cloud to them was the glory of God. It meant that God was with them and for them. So when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. God was now dwelling with his people in his glory. Let's ask the big question this morning. What is God's glory? It's kind of an abstract term, right? What does God's glory even mean? What does it mean for us now? We don't have a tabernacle. We don't see any sort of cloud resting over our church building or anything like that. Where is God's glory today? Those are important questions. I mean, the word glory is a top five important word in the Bible. And yet, it's somewhat difficult to define. In the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the word for glory was related to the idea of weight. In that time, the value of something was determined by its weight. So the weightier something was, the more value or glory it had. Then in the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, the word for glory related to making something visible. It carried the idea of seeing the value of something and then making a judgment on that value and ascribing to that thing honor. So to put those two ideas together, I think, gives us a helpful way to define glory. Glory is the weight or worth or greatness of something made visible and known. So God's glory is his greatness His supreme worth made known to his people. It's all of his attributes, his perfections, his beauty displayed for us so that we might see it. And then in turn, ascribe back to him his greatness and worth in worship. That's what it means to glorify God. You are declaring and displaying his greatness and worth. And that's the reason you were created. We see this in Exodus 40 as God's glory fills the tabernacle. It's God's greatness and worth being revealed so fully that Moses cannot even go into the tent. It's overwhelming. It's it's amazing. And here's the incredible connection to us today. Here's what the New Testament tells us about God's glory. You may remember in John chapter 1, John opens his gospel by calling Jesus the word. And explaining how Jesus has existed for all eternity as the Son. And John says this in John 1.14. He says, In the Word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is. He says, we've seen God's glory. How? Through Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. And when he came to the earth and he took on flesh... We saw the glory of God. We we talked a few weeks ago about how that word dwelt among us. Dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. John wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. A few verses later in John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There again is that idea of glory. Jesus made God known. He made his greatness and his worth visible, just as in the cloud, but in an obviously greater way because Jesus was and is God. 
The New Testament carries on this idea. Hebrews 1, the book opens like this. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It says Jesus is the radiance, he's the brightness, he's the display of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Imprint means a representation of something. Jesus was the fullest and most perfect representation of God. Then there's Colossians 1.15, simply says Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Again, there's the making known of God. God is invisible. We cannot see him. So taking something that cannot be seen or even understood by us and then making it visible so that we can see how beautiful and amazing and worthy God is and give him the praise and honor that he is due. That's what Jesus did. So to sum this up, just as Israel saw the glory of God in the tabernacle, we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as they saw the cloud coming to rest over the tabernacle as the manifestation of God's glory, and they knew that God was for them and was with them, we see the manifestation of God's glory in Jesus, and we can know that God is with us and for us. Because Jesus is not only the way to God, he is God himself. So what do we do with this? I mean, cool, Jesus is the glory of God, but what does that mean for you, for me here today? Can we experience that glory all these years later? Can we still get a glimpse of God's greatness and worth and, and be impacted by it as the people were in Exodus 40? I want you to know absolutely you can. And you can know God in a way that the Israelites could not have even comprehended. So let me close quickly with three ways that we can experience the glory of God in Jesus for ourselves. Here's the first, number one. Number one, we must reflect on what he has done. The tabernacle being completed and set up would have been a moment for Israel to not only celebrate, but to reflect. Just one year previously, they had been enslaved in Egypt they had been hopeless, crying out desperately for God's deliverance. And now, one year later, they're seeing the glory of God descending on their very camp. And a lot happened in that one year for them to reflect on. There were a lot of good moments, like the parting of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments being given. There were also a lot of bad moments, like the complaining in the wilderness, the doubting of Moses' leadership, the idolatry of the golden calf. All of that would have been playing through their mind as they reflected on that previous year. The good and the bad, the highs and the lows. They all served to show the people God's present glory as they reflected on what God had done. We too can experience God's glory as we reflect on what he's done throughout all our lives. Listen to me. One thing that is true of every person in this room is we all have a story. And I'm guessing, like my story, there are some really good moments in your story. Some parting of the Red Sea moments where you saw God work in your favor. God came through. He, he answered a prayer. 
things just lined up perfectly for you. But I'm also guessing, like my story, you have some bad moments, some low moments, some moments you regret, maybe even some moments where you just completely blew it like the Israelites did with the golden calf. Or some some moments of suffering where life happened to you and life was difficult and you had no idea how you would make it through. Listen, that's true for all of us. And when we look back and reflect on what God has done, all of those moments become occasions to see God's glory in our lives. The good moments reveal God's glory because in them we can see God's goodness and mercy. We can see that he gives us things we don't deserve because he's a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. But it's not just the good moments that reveal God's glory. The bad moments reveal God's glory too and oftentimes in an even sweeter way than the good ones. Because it's the bad moments where we see God's forgiveness and grace when we messed up. We see that Jesus loves you despite your sin. He loves you so much he died for your sin. Bad moments are also when we can see that God carries us through situations where we, we think we'll never make it. We can see that God was faithful to bring us to where we are today. He didn't give up on us. So friends, this is something I would encourage you to do regularly. Take some time to reflect honestly and intentionally on all that God has done in your story. Even the parts that are embarrassing or painful, even those moments can be redeemed by God and looked at in a new light. So if we want to experience God's glory in our lives like Israel, we must reflect on what he has done. Here's a second way to experience God's glory in Jesus. Number two, we must obey what he has said. You just pause with me and think about the situation the Israelites were in at the end of this book. On one hand, they'd been freed from slavery, from centuries of slavery. That had to feel good. But on the other hand, they're out here in the wilderness following this guy Moses, who they've known just a little over a year. They're headed to a place they've never been. They know there's going to be bad people there they're going to have to deal with. And they just built this big fancy tent. They're making sacrifices with animals. They don't fully understand everything, but they know they they better do what God said because last time they did their own thing, a bunch of people died. The the Israelites were living in this in-between world between slavery and the promised land. Things were a lot better than they used to be, but they weren't as good as they knew they could be. And here's what they learned living in that in-between. Obedience to God is not always easy, but it's always worth it. And that in-between world of the Israelites, I think, is the perfect illustration of where we live as Christians today. Yeah, we've been saved from the slavery of sin and death. Life is good. We have so much to rejoice in. But we aren't in the promised land of heaven yet. We're in this good but but difficult in-between. The Apostle Paul makes this exact connection. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking about the Israelites, and he tells them this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, now these things happened to them, to the Israelites, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, for Christians on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Now Paul says part of the reason this story was written down in Exodus was for our example and instruction. For us, all these thousands of years later, later, because we're like them. We're sojourners in the wilderness, stuck in that in-between, and we too must learn that obedience is not always easy, but it's always worth it. It was when the Israelites obeyed God and built the tabernacle that they saw God's glory. It was then that they finally understood why they needed to do all these things in a specific way. They saw that their obedience was worth it. Friend, if you will just obey God where you are, you too will see God's glory in your life. I know things may not be where you want them to be. This is not the promised land. And it never will be until Jesus comes back. But if you will just obey God where you are, you will see God's glory in your life. I'm not saying it's going to all be magically daisies and roses. God does not promise everything's going to go our way and that life will be easy and comfortable. He promises the opposite. But you will find that obeying God And doing what he's called you to do right here in this moment is always worth it. Here's the third and last way to experience God's glory in Jesus. Number three, we must behold who he is. We must behold who he is. And this is the most important one right here. Because what we need more than anything is simply to see and behold God's glory in Jesus Christ. So often what we want is action, right? Give me the action steps. Tell me the book I need to read. Give me the five-point plan. Tell me what to do and I'll do it, okay? But here's how Paul describes the Christian life. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, as Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How are we transformed? Paul says it's the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He transforms you. So what do you need to do? He says simply, behold. Just behold. Look. Consider. Reflect on Jesus. And as you do, Paul says you'll be transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. See, that's the thing about glory. When you see glory, it changes you. When you behold glory, it moves you. I'm going to step out here and say that when the Israelites saw the glory of God fill the tabernacle, they were forever changed. You think? They marveled at it. They thought about it. They talked about it. They told their kids and their grandkids about it. It affected the way they lived. It changed their life. Look, guys, when you see for yourself the infinite worth and supreme greatness of the glory of God in Jesus, and you consider and believe for yourself who he is and what he's done for you, you will never be the same. You can't be. So have you seen the glory of God? Have you experienced it for yourself? I'm not asking if you know these mental facts and trivia about Jesus. I'm not asking if you like Jesus or agree with his teachings and think he did some good things. I'm asking, have you experienced the new life, the eternal life, the resurrection life that comes only through a relationship with Jesus? If you have not, 
Today is the day to call on him. He's done everything you need. You don't have to follow a new ritual. You don't have to memorize some long list of rules. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to recite any creed. All you have to do is believe. If you'll just go to him in prayer and give him your life and trust in his salvation, you will experience his glory. You will be changed forever if you'll just give it up to him. And if you have done that today, if you're like me and you're a follower of Jesus and you know this glory, here's what you need to do. You need to go back again. You need to go back and marvel again. Do not be content with what you have currently, but seek to know and experience more of God's glory in your life. Again, that's why you were created. Look at the glorious truths of the gospel and believe them again. And be transformed one degree more and one degree more and one degree more and one degree more. Do not stop. Never get enough of God. So wherever you are, wherever you've been, as we, like the Israelites, live in this in-between, life's good, life's hard, it's not heaven, but it's better than it was, don't miss the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Stop. And behold, would you bow with me in prayer?